Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Howdy. And Jerry, for the last time this year, she's just informed us and she's all smiles. She is. Not very nice, Jerry. Uh, How'd you like that uh, presentation earlier? The sensitivity training? Uh Uh-huh. It was great. Yes, people, because we work for a corporation, we have uh, things like sensitivity trainings. Uh Uh-huh. And in those trainings, you get shown uh, video examples of various forms of harassment, and they are the best, most fun things to watch ever. They're pretty overt. Yeah, I could watch those all day long. I was wondering how much that production company made from that. Yeah. You know, they did what, like five little vignettes? They, I'm sure they paid the actors like literal peanuts. Yeah, they were bad actors. They're like, get, there's the peanut bucket over there. You can pay yourself. Yeah, the old, the one uh, that really got me was the, uh, actually they were all really funny, but the one with the old guy in the, uh, in the factory loading boxes, like a shipping, uh, yeah. warehouse. Right. And they were giving the old man a hard time about everything. Cause he was old. Yeah, cause he's old and, you know, he, they were giving him a hard time cause he'd, uh, he was out of work for a while, and they had to yeah. co- cover for him. Right, the old man, and he had the back brace on. Did you notice that? <laughs> yeah. And he just the look on his face. He just kept getting a little more like pouty the whole time. Yeah, I was like, dude, that's good acting. Stick up for yourself. Tell these young kids, you know, what to do. The back brace prevents him from it. Anyway, I just had to bring that up because I, I just think that stuff is so funny. And what's funny is people really do th- some of that stuff that you're like, what? Yeah, there's some creeps out there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that was a really weird setup for Jim Henson because he's the least harassy guy he was probably ever. Yeah. He certainly comes across that way. He's a genuinely good dude. It's not one of these stories you hear about, like, uh, maybe some of your favorite children's books, writers or cartoonists or something. Maybe were kind of bad people. No, apparently not at all. Yeah. Um, he was not only... So there's a lot of quotes in this article. John, no, John, I thought John Strickland wrote it. It turns out that's not the case. I'm surprised. Yeah. Because um, he's friends with, or down with at least, uh, one of Jim Henson's kids. Oh, really? Who I believe lives here in Atlanta. Oh, wow. And But in this article, it's one of those things where everybody who compliments Jim Henson, who worked with him, they they go to the trouble of complimenting him in a way that's not just... Like, oh, he was such a great guy. Yeah. They all back up just a little bit because they're cognizant that that doesn't get it across. Sure. And they want you to understand that they're talking about more than just the great guy. Like, right. oh, he's dead and I'm not going to speak ill of the dead. And he was right. a great guy. And that's a really thoughtless, polite, inoffensive thing to say. Sure. So like Frank Oz said something like he, he was a, he was a, a, a great guy, but at the same time, you know, he was a human, but he was still a really great guy. Right. So, like, what you're thinking of as a great guy, get rid of that and actually replace it with a genuine human great guy. Yeah, because as a filmmaker, he's a puppeteer, obviously, but he was a filmmaker, first and foremost, which a lot of people kind of forget about. Yeah. Um, did did you watch tough, any of these? Oh, yeah. Man. Uh, that's a tough, tough job. Super stressful. And you and I have seen it can make good guys and good ladies be real jerks and yell under stressful situations you know it's it's 
it's a tough thing. There's a lot of money on the line each day. And, uh, it's like everybody relax. It's just millions of dollars. Yeah. But Frank Oz, I think that's the point he was making. Like even when he would get frustrated and uh, stressed like that, it mm-hmm. was, he was still a good guy behind it all. Yeah. And I read a, I read an, I guess it was a book review of a biography about him that, that showed that it was all, somebody said it was all just play to him. Yeah. Like work was play. Yeah. Even though he worked really hard. Uh huh. He was able to commit himself like that to his work because to him, he was having the time of his life yeah. all the time. And apparently, like, there was just, there was no line between work and play, which now that we've seen that sensitivity training right. could have gotten him in a lot of big, you know, a lot of trouble. But he, um, he, he just enjoyed the life that he had from what I understand. Loved cars. Yeah. He had like a Lotus that was the same color as Kermit the Frog. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a, a Rolls Royce early on from his work. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, let's talk about the guy. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't, I just need to go ahead and say, if you haven't listened to the episode on the Muppets, mm-hmm. um, this is a, a, what I consider just a more in-depth part two on the man himself. Right. But that's one of our favorite all-time episodes. And from feedback, one of the great all-time fan episodes. Yeah, uh, it was a great episode. Yeah, it was just a lot of fun. And so I hope this augments that one. I uh, hope we do it justice. So um, th- that's actually one of the reasons why we can do this episode, because we already did a Muppets episode. This and they a- tweeted about us, do you remember? The Henson Company did. Yeah, they did. Which was they approved. huge. Uh-huh. It got their actual approval. That's right. Man, that was something. Um, the The... Muppets episode is its own thing. It's about Muppets. This is about Jim Henson, and it's appropriate that we're doing this because he was more than just the Muppets, even though everybody pegs him with the Muppets, and sure. like that is a huge thing. He was more than that. And like you said, he was a filmmaker, but originally started out as a, a, a puppeteer, but kind of a reluctant one. Yeah, he was born in uh, uh, 1936, September 24th, uh, James Maury Henson, M-A-U-R-Y, mm-hmm. in Mississippi. And his grandmother, maternal grandmother, was a painter and a quilter and a needleworker and apparently was a big inspiration to him uh, just to seek out the creative in life. Right. Which is pretty great. Yeah. Um, and one of the one of the things he got into, well, he was originally a, a kind of a fan of uh, ventriloquism a little bit. But he, he said later on in life that he was never he was never like obsessed with puppets or anything like that, like you would have expected him to be. And as he went to college, I think in Maryland, he uh, he got into – he started out as a studio artist. That's what he was studying. Yeah, he loved television above all else right. from the time he was a little kid. He was just transfixed by the tube. He almost kind of made himself destined to be on television by being obsessed with it. Yeah. But um, he kind of stumbled into puppetry uh, in college – and he started out as a studio art major and ended up graduating with a home ec degree because home ec was the only degree that offered puppet making courses. Yeah, he, he majored uh, or he took a puppetry course at first and uh, then uh, a bunch of textiles and crafts courses, which yeah. is a great way to you know start building and making your own puppets. Right. So but he graduated with a home ec degree. But by the time he graduated, he was already extremely successful. The um, the uh, Rolls Royce that I mentioned, he bought in time to drive to his college graduation. Yeah, because he'd already created successful shows um, 
in his town. Yeah, I think he was a, in high school, he was on the local TV station, uh, doing little guest spots. And then, uh, in 1955, the show Sam and Friends, mm-hmm. uh, debuted and that, uh, you know, he also did work on the side making money with, um, I think he did some of the like really cool concert posters of the day. Right. Really color, colorful, uh, silkscreen posters. And Sam and Friends did really well. Uh, but he still wasn't quite sure. Like, I still don't know if I want to, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I did these short films, really sort of weird, abstract short films, live action. Experimental. Totally experimental. Did you see the timepiece? Oh, yeah. That one was pretty cool. It was great. Um, in its way. And did you see the cube? Uh, I watched parts of the cube. Th- that was, did you see the end? No. Oh, you've got to see the end. I skipped the middle because I was like, okay, I, I get where you're going with this. Yeah, the, well, we should just set it up real quick. The Cube was a show on NBC. It was a one-hour show. Um, in 1969. The name of the show NBC did was called uh, Experiment in Television. <laughs> and Appropriately it, it was a different thing each week, and he had one week's installment uh-huh. called The Cube, which was a guy just stuck in a white room, but other people could come in and out of the room, but he could not, right? Yes. Okay. And he starts to go kind of crazy. And it has the look and feel of a color TV ad, um, like all, lots of overacting and like Carol Burnett-esque characters and stuff like that. But yeah. the the sentiment behind it and like the, the uh, everything behind it is really neat. And it really gives you a good, uh, an eye-opening example of like what Jim Henson was capable of, but also like what he was into. Because, yeah. you know, when you think of him, you think of... Muppets and Sesame Street in particular. Sure. And these are weird, abstract art films. Um, not unlike, you know, you watch like a Jim Morrison art film from film school. Right. And it's kind of the same style, you know, that was what was going on back then. Yeah. And he actually got nominated for an Academy Award for Timepiece. Uh, I think Jim Henson, Jim Henson had Jim Morrison beat by a mile as far as experimental films went. Yeah. I'll agree with you there. Um, so like I said, he wasn't quite convinced that puppetry was his future because he was a filmmaker and he was like, puppets are still kind of kid stuff. Right. But uh, post-college, he did the old tour of Europe. And in Europe, puppeteering is a whole different business. It was a lot more serious mm-hmm. um, and a lot more, um, I guess... It was uh, treated as art. Yeah, exactly. And he said, you know what? I'm, I am going to give this a shot. Came back to the U.S., uh, married uh, Jane. And even though he and Jane separated, they never divorced. Uh, oh, really? I thought they did. No, they never uh, fulfilled the divorce. They gotcha. just stayed separated. Okay. And um, then he started making TV commercials and formed his own company in 1963 with, I don't know if he formed it with Frank Oz, but he hired Frank Oz and Jerry Jewell, mm-hmm. who ended up being uh, obviously legendary puppeteers. And, and lifelong collaborators of his. Yeah. Yeah, but he started out making a basically a puppet-based commercial ad agency in New York. In, yes. In 1963. And, yeah, and they weren't making funny commercials back then, so he was really pretty revolutionary right. at the time. And they, I mean, they did pretty well for themselves. And one of the smartest moves he made early on was all of his contracts said that he retained the rights to any of the creations he made for these companies. Yeah. So he was creating what some of the things that would later become famous Muppets, like the Cookie Monster, was originally made for a chip maker. It was this 
puppet that couldn't get enough of these chips. Yeah, he was the wheel stealer, and he stole cheese wheels. Yeah, okay, that's what it was. Yeah. Um, and he ended up being the Cookie Monster, and the reason he ended up being the Cookie Monster is because Jim Henson retained the rights to that creation. That was he was a very savvy business guy too. Yeah, and he was he was using somebody else's dime these these advertisers yeah like budgets to kind of hash out and form and make his muppets yeah ralph the dog started yeah. out on uh, purina commercials and was later a sidekick on the jimmy dean show in 1963 which i remember that from the muppets episode ralph yeah. was the first big muppet then it's he's such like a bit character now yeah that, you know, it's just mind-boggling to think he was the one that started it all. Even before Kermit, before yeah. Big Bird, it was Rolf. Kermit kind of stole the show, I think. Yeah. And we'll talk a little more about Kermit and where he came from right after this. All right. So it's 1969, and a very, very big thing happens to Jim Henson. Uh, he was invited to be uh, on the pilot of a show created by the Children's Television Workshop uh, called Sesame Street. And he did not create it. No. Some people think he did. But he did make his mark by creating uh, most of the iconic characters. And if you were a fan of the old Sesame Streets back then, all not all, but many of those little short films, the little claymation ones or the right. live action ones, he directed those as well. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. I never knew that. I think I knew that. Did you? Yeah, he was the, he was <laughs> our Russ Vick. Yeah. No, he was their Russ Vick. That's right. Russ Vick is ours. That's right. So, um, Chuck, uh, the the whole thing that changed everything for him was Sesame Street. Yeah, he's not a he he wasn't a creator of Sesame Street. They just hired him on. Yeah, and they actually kind of won him over because remember one of the things that Jim Henson always struggled with his whole career was he wanted to. Explore places that puppets had never really gone to. Right. In themes that they hadn't gone to, at least not in mo- the modern age. Sure. Um, but he was fighting against them not being taken seriously. Yeah. It wasn't like he was anti-puppet by any means. He was an- or anti-kids. Because mm-hmm. one of the big reasons he signed on with Children's Television Workshop was their goal to educate kids. Right. It meant a lot to him. But um, like you said, I think to merge those worlds successfully was a big part of his goal. Right. And struggle for a little while. Uh, Russ Vick, by the way, made the little interstitial things for the Stuff You Should Know television show. Yeah, the animations. Which is why I reference him. Yeah. (laughs) So the Children's Television Workshop, which is now called the Sesame Workshop, Yeah, from what I understand, they won him over big time. He makes all of these characters from like Big Bird and I think Kermit came before Sesame Street. And he started out I think we talked about this in the Muppet episode, too. He started out looking really weird. Yeah, like a lizard almost. Yeah, not cool at all, like really kind of freaky. Yeah. Which is something that I, now that I know a little more about Jim Henson, I think maybe he might have even been going for. Right. But one of the things that Sesame Street allowed him to do was to really kind of explore something that he'd long been obsessed with, which was television and where it converged with puppets, which was all new territory, and Jim Hansen was at the bleeding edge of it. Oh yeah, because if you think about it, when you go to a puppet show live, you know you're you're looking at what's essentially a mechanism for hiding the human, mm-hmm. and there's just a little area that the puppet can move around in. 
well, little tiny fake stage. Yeah. Yeah. So Jim Henson stepped back and said, okay, the television is that little tiny area that the puppet can stay, can move around in. Yeah. But it also opens up the whole world for a puppet because you're using camera angles and there's editing and it's not in person. Yeah, just frame out the people. <laughs> so, and again, we talked about this in the Muppet episode. He created something called platforming up. Yeah. To where the, the puppeteers no longer had to like crouch down and, in to, to, to maneuver the puppets. Yeah, cause he was a tall guy. Yeah. Tall and lanky. Man, he was skinny. Oh, those running shots in timepiece. Exactly. Cause he was in it. They were hysterical. Yeah. And he weighs about 70 pounds yeah. somehow. <laughs> His big lanky legs. But, um, so yeah, the performers could stand up, which was a huge weight off. Yeah. But at the same time, because you're working with cameras and stuff like that, and they have the whole universe to move around in, and Jim Henson wanted him to move around as much as possible. Mm-hmm. It also put him in some weird positions. Yeah, if you ever, uh, well, some people might think it's like kind of ruining the thing, but I think it's really neat if you if you just look up on uh, Google Images Muppets Muppet Show behind the scenes pictures. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it'll show the the stage sets. You know, like uh, six feet off the ground, right? And all the people standing beneath. Um, I think it's awesome to look at. But some people don't like, you know, they want to keep that illusion alive. Right. So depending on what kind of person you are, either seek that out or don't. And we gave that warning in the Muppets episode, too. Did we? Yeah. Yeah. Those, I think they're really cool pictures. I agree. Because, you know, a lot of times they're looking at uh, they're looking at video monitors um, standing there, contorted, using both hands. Right. Um, like uh, the way puppeteers work together to me is, is just a miracle. Because they're acting as the puppets, but they're moving, still moving among one another as humans right. underneath, which can be really complicated. We, In fact, we know some really, really talented puppeteers here in Atlanta. Yeah, the Center for Puppetry Arts is, yeah. I think, the nation's largest puppet puppeteer organization. Yep, and that is where we had our TV show debut party, premiere right. party. Yeah. Like, it was a really cool experience. Like, Emmett Otter and the gang are right there on display. I think the... Henson and Kermit cut the ribbon for the grand opening yeah. uh, back when it opened and um, ended up donating like 500 puppets and Muppets right. to the Center for Puppetry Arts. So if you ever visit Atlanta, people always email us and say, what should we do? I highly recommend going and checking out the Center for Puppetry Arts. Yeah, because they have a museum with, like you said, Emmett Otter. Oh, man, There's all sorts Skeksy, of cool stuff. Like a yeah. full-size, life-size Skeksy yeah. behind glass, scary as you can imagine. Yeah, but I was talking about Raymond Carr, our friend, who mm-hmm. uh, I hate to keep bringing up the TV show, but it all kind of overlaps. He was a production designer for uh, Stuff You Should Know on Science Channel. Yeah. And he and his friends, uh, Brandon and the gang, are amazing puppeteers, and they're doing some really, really leading edge, like, cool stuff here in Atlanta. Yeah. Like, these giant puppets operated, like, you know, 15-foot-tall puppets operated by, like, six and eight people. Uh, Have you ever seen the spaceman that they do? No. Oh, man, it's unbelievable. It's really cool. It's like, I don't know how tall he is. He seems like he's 20 feet tall. And uh, they, you know, do these at parades and stuff, and it's just really, really cool stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. But Henson is a huge inspiration to them, obviously. Oh, yeah. I think anybody who works even remotely in puppets has oh, yeah. got to be inspired by Jim Henson. He's the man. Um, one of the other things that he came up with was that was based on putting Muppets or puppets on TV was using softer materials. Yeah. Uh, everything else was like up to that point. Stiff wood marionettes, ventriloquist dummies, that kind of stuff. Right. He used like foam and it allowed the, the, 
the puppets themselves to have more expressive faces, which was great for a close-up on TV. Yeah, absolutely. And it also, I mean, you now looking back, you just are like, well, yeah, of course, it's what puppets do. That's what... I know. But that was Jim Henson that came up with that. Yeah. And it changed everything because it, it took something like... I mean, imagine Howdy Doody. It was like, yeah, it's cool. You know, it's Howdy Doody or whatever. But yeah. whether close up or far away, he looked exactly the same. It was like a woodhead with like a moving lower jaw. Yeah. And, you know, he gave you nightmares. <laughs> with Kermit the Frog or something like that, the fact that he could have different expressions and react differently and, and his emotions could be shown on his face, that made him that much more popular, that much more approachable. Sure. Uh, to people who are into him. Absolutely. Which is everybody. Yeah. Yeah, show me someone who doesn't like Muppets in any form. I get it if you don't like it anymore, maybe, but your heart is cold and dead inside. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For a while, and this is something I don't think I knew, uh, he dabbled on Saturday Night Live in season one. Uh, Lorne Michaels got him a deal to perform some sketches, and uh, ultimately it wasn't a huge success, and it wasn't the greatest marriage. But it was pretty cool that he was uh, seeking out, you know, different avenues to get those puppets on television. It was. And his big break came um, in 1975. He had a he wanted to make the Muppet Show, and he had a lot of trouble in the U.S. Still, yeah. Even though he had his various successes on commercials and stuff, uh, so he had to go to London, and a TV producer named Lord Lou Grade <laughs> gave him a deal with Grade's ATV Studios. Said, you know what? You can make your show, uh, and the Muppet Show was born. Oh yeah, bada bing, bada boom. That was it. That was it. And um, you can really see Jim Henson's love of variety shows and just kind of, um, well, just the stage uh, in the Muppet Show. Because if you think about it, it's set the whole thing set backstage at a variety show. It's such a great idea when yeah. you look back at it. Like so, we take it for granted a little bit because we were kids. Mm-hmm. But now as an adult, it's like, what a perfect way to frame this world is it's basically like 30 Rock or 30 Rock was the Muppet Show. Right. Well, the Muppet Show started all that. Yeah. I don't know if Carol Burnett was before the Muppet Show. Yeah, it was before. Was it? Yeah. So she did a lot of backstage stuff, didn't she? Uh, I wonder who started that. I don't know. I mean, hers was more sketch. Yeah, but some of it was like backstage. Was it? I believe so. I don't remember that. Um, Unless I'm hallucinating right now. They need to have a good old-fashioned variety show again. Yeah, they don't have those anymore. Those were big back in the day, you know? Like, a host comes out, and then there's sketches and sure. singing. and Remember our cabaret? No, it wasn't cabaret. What was it, the episode we did? Oh, uh, burlesque? Burlesque. Yeah. Yeah, how that started out in vaudeville, and burlesque had, that's where stand-up comedy came from. That was an interesting episode. Yeah. I miss those variety shows, though, like the Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton and uh, yeah. Kel Burnett, all the, the Vandrell sisters. Although Kenny and Dolly could just sit on a couch and stare at the camera for an hour, and I'd watch that. <laughs> yeah. They are the best. Great entertainers. Yeah. Love those two. Um, all right. So where are we in our timeline? Well, Chuck, the Muppet Show has just hit. Oh, that's right. Things are going pretty well. They have been going pretty well already for Henson. Apparently in 1970, Rubber Ducky hit number 16 on the Billboard charts. And for those who don't know, uh, Ernie, 
is oh, yeah, voiced yeah. by Jim Henson. So Jim Henson sang a song, Rubber Ducky, that made it to number 16 on the Billboard charts. And that was 1970, a year after The Cube, before <laughs> The Muppet Show even happened. Before Sesame Street even, right? No, Sesame was Street was 69, I oh, think. okay, yeah. Same year as The Cube. Wow. That's, that's crazy. The, that's the think. new touchstone for his <laughs> life, the cube. Yeah, PC and BC. Um, so the Muppet Show was a was a huge hit. It won, uh, you know, a lot of awards. It garnered critical praise and won the hearts of children all over the world. Uh, but it was also for adults too. Oh yeah, I think that's why he was able to pull it off in Great Britain because they have better senses of humor. Yeah, and speaking of adults, uh, he got into some more serious themes with his. Next great show, Fraggle Rock. Yeah. In 1983. I never uh, saw a second of that show. Oh, man. Really? It wasn't it on HBO? Yeah, it was one of the first HBO had, original series. We either had Showtime or we didn't have HBO. Didn't have anything. Or, yeah. uh, it was awesome. Fraggle Rock was great. And uh, the idea there is you had the the Fraggle gang and then you had, well, you, you had three different groups. You had uh, the home of Doc, who was an inventor, and his dog, Sprocket. Um you had the Fraggles who shared caves underground uh, of Fraggle Rock with uh, their neighbors, the Doozers and the Gorgs and these gigantic creatures uh, that are in Gorg's garden. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of that show was to show how different types of people can live together and work together in peace. Right. It was really cool. Didn't know it at the time when I was, you know, 12 years old. But what I was learning about was acceptance and uh, he won three Cable Ace Awards, uh, five International Emmys, and Fraggle Rock was uh, one of the first big hits for HBO That's as great. far as TV goes. Yeah. Great, great show. Lots of great songs that, I mean, he had every kind of, like, he had reggae, rock, country, bluegrass. Really? He was all over the map with the music on Fraggle Rock. Uh, and he, I mean, he wrote a lot of songs, too. I think he wrote Rubber Ducky. I'm sure he wrote a lot of the stuff on Fraggle Rock. It was just yet another thing he did was write music. Yeah. Renaissance man. Um, the other show that he came out with in the 80s, in the mid-80s, that I was big time into was Muppet Babies. I never saw one second of that. Man, I love that show. Yeah, we're just enough apart in age where, like, uh, certain things I saw you I was you were too young for and then certain things I was too old for. You know what's weird, though? I'm just going to say this. So Yumi and I are the same age. Uh-huh. Her sister is, like, five years younger than us. Uh-huh. And I used to love Muppet Babies. Yeah. Yumi's sister used to watch Muppet Babies. So Yumi was like, why were you watching Muppet Babies if my younger sister was watching Muppet Babies? And Yumi didn't watch Muppet Babies? No, she watched like Donahue or something like that. (laughs) I watched Muppet Babies. I'm not ashamed anymore to say it. Well, when was that? 1984? I was 13. So yeah, I was just, I was starting to be a teenager. Muppet Babies didn't appeal. I think it was on for like four or five seasons. So maybe I was watching it at the beginning of the series. And Mika was watching it. That's what I've been telling Yumi. In 84, you would have been, uh, what? Eight? Oh yeah, that's perfect age for okay. Muppet Babies. So I think I think we just saw it on different ends of the series, is what it was. Is that what it is? Um, but <laughs> have you ever heard of Ron Funches? Uh, yeah, the comedian. Yeah, yeah. He has a little bit about Muppet Babies that's pretty hilarious. Oh really? Yeah, he's awesome. Love that guy. Yeah, we saw him live. He's just a beautiful human being. Um, Muppet Babies was cartoon though, right? Right. It was not live puppets, correct? At all? No, it was cartoon. Okay. It was so cute. <laughs> Were they just the regular Muppets as babies? Yes. Oh, well, I'll have to watch that sometime. Yeah, and they like used their imagination. And, uh-huh. uh, like Gonzo had a thing for Indiana Jones, so he was frequently oh. like 
exploring caves and like swinging on vines with a Indiana Jones fedora on and that kind of stuff. Well, see, I would probably enjoy that now. You would. Yeah. Definitely. All right. I'm going to go get Muppet Babies. Chuck, he did even more TV that we'll talk about in a second, okay? Okay. Okay. Okay, and we're back. And, and we're still in the 80s. That's right. And you were talking about other TV. Uh, as we said, the man loved television and filmmaking. And so he got away from the Muppets and Puppets every now and then. Uh, collaborated with uh, Raymond Scott, who was an electronica pioneer, actually, mm-hmm. on shorts called Ripples and Wheels That Go. Uh, and he did that for the Montreal Expo in 67. Right. And I know we're jumping around in time, but we're just trying to paint the full picture here, not going necessarily in order. Mm-hmm. And then he also did this cool thing called The Floating Face, which uh, was a sketch that was on The Tonight Show and The Mike Douglas Show in the 60s. Um, which uh, Did you see any of that? A little bit. It was a little weird. Uh, it was like two eyes and a mouth, and there were like these invisible wires and background images. And the, it, was, it was definitely a little more on that surreal tip. Right. The Henson surreal tip. Yeah. Not kid-oriented necessarily. But he got into the movies with the Muppet movie, which was a big hit. <laughs> so good. It still holds up, man. It's still so great. And if you want to know more about that movie and just some of the cool facts from it, go again, listen to the Muppet episode. Yeah. As a matter of fact, pause this. <laughs> go listen to the Muppet episode and then come back to this one. Yeah. What it'll it'll probably enhance your experience. Agreed. Or listen to them both at the same time. Uh, but he followed the Muppet, uh, in 1982, he made the Dark Crystal. Yeah. Which was, uh, puppets, and it was based on, um, some drawings by fantasy artist Brian Froud. And, um, there were no humans, it was all puppets, and I don't think it holds up as well, but it still looks pretty good. Well, yeah, I think it actually is probably better received now than it was originally. Yeah. I think critics appreciated it, but it didn't do so well at the box office, but now it's become like it kind okay. of a, a cult classic for sure. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons why it, it didn't do that well at the box office is because audiences didn't quite know what to make of it. They sure. heard Frank Oz, who co-directed it, right. Jim Henson, uh, and Puppets, and I think they went expecting the Muppet movie. This is 1982, and they 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 got the Dark Crystal instead, which yeah. is really dark. A lot of the like the theme is you know good versus evil, and it's the evil in it is really really evil. Yeah, and the stuff that happens to some of the puppets is, including really cute puppets, yeah, is really horrifying. And um, I read this awesome quote by Frank Oz, and basically he says. Like, Jim thought it was okay to scare kids. As a matter of fact, he thought it wasn't healthy for kids to never be scared. So, like, he purposefully was trying to scare kids, and he he, he wanted to take uh, the tradition back to, like, grim fairy tales, which were very, very dark and oh, graphic. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. That's what he was going for with the Dark Crystal. Yeah, I think it was ahead of its time for sure. Yeah. If you look at some of these, uh, like, some of the CGI movies today, mm-hmm. I think that... Dark Crystal was a precursor to a lot of those. Right. Uh, then he went on to make the movie La- uh, The Labyrinth. With Bowie, right? Yeah, David Bowie and a very Tom Cruise? young Jennifer Connelly. No, that was uh, Legend. Oh, okay. Um, good movie. Uh, but this was um, written by Terry Jones of Monty Python fame and then rewritten a bunch by a bunch of other people, including executive producer George Lucas. Mm-hmm. Um, Labyrinth was okay. Not bad. Again, not a huge hit. Uh, for Henson, though, as far as movies go. 
But he was still out there exploring these cool, fantastical worlds and yeah. fantasy worlds. And he still had a lot of cred, um, even in the late 80s. Uh, if you think about it, his heyday was the late 70s, early 80s with the Muppet show, the Muppet movies. Yeah. And then after that, it was like, yeah, I'll try this with Jim Henson. Oh, I'll try this with Jim Henson. Yeah. Um, and even, even still, he had like a, a, he was on a pretty great streak. And at the end of the 80s, he had two TV shows on the Jim Henson Hour. Yeah. And Storytell, the Storyteller. Yeah. The Jim Henson Hour, he was always pushing the boundaries. The Storyteller, looking back now, or I'm sorry, Jim Henson Hour, looking back, was really different from what you were getting at the time because it was it was all over the map you had certain shows that were like you know four or five sketches in one and then right. three of the episodes were full on one hour little mini movies oh really from yeah from beginning that's like to Louis. end yeah that's a good point actually huh. um one of the uh, little mini movies was called dog city which was great it was narrated by rolf and it was i remember watching this it was like a a film noir gangster thing with, oh, yeah. with puppet dogs. Yeah. Uh, and the main character, Ace U, was uh, the guy who did Elmo. Kevin Clash did uh, the character of Ace U. And that was fantastic. I think Dog City went on to be a TV show in its own right, too, okay. for a little while. But it was really good. I mean, it's total, like, gangster crime film noir, but it's, you know, Rolf the dog and right. the gang. I love Rolf. It's really cool. Um, the storyteller... I hadn't seen before. I was, I guess, aware of, but I don't know why I wasn't watching it because it would have been like right there for me. Yeah. Because I would have been 12 in 1988. But I watched one today and it was really good. It's like human um, puppet interaction. Yeah. Which is, and it's just seamless. Like there's one of the things from studying this that I've realized is like we take for granted and expect our puppet human interactions to be so seamless that we don't even realize that we're looking at puppets right yeah. then. And the reason why we expect that is because of Jim Henson and the people he worked with and, and inspired to, to work so hard at creating that illusion. Well, yeah, the illusion that these are living, breathing things. Uh, he would go, I remember uh, Kermit as guest on talk shows. Right. He wouldn't go out as Jim Henson. He would go out as, I mean, he did those appearances as well, but... Kermit the Frog would be a guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Or host. Or host The Tonight, guest host The Tonight Show. And Larry King. Yeah, and it, it was all a part of this um, uh, goal of making these real people. Right. Or real living things, not people. Yeah, apparently somebody who was working with uh, Jim Henson was, I guess, a director of The Muppet Show, would be giving Jim notes on Kermit. And Jim would just respond, like, let Kermit respond. That would freak and me out. And the director said, eventually, you're just sitting there, you turn and you address <laughs> Kermit. Like, he'd just force you into, yeah. like, interacting with the puppet, even, right. like, during a, a notes session. Yeah, and probably without feeling silly or stupid or anything. Right. You know, it probably seemed like a totally normal thing to do. Eventually, once he forced you to do it. Uh, he also pioneered the uh, Henson Performance Control System and won an Academy Award for that, and that was a... a remote control system that uh, helped puppeteers out. So he, he was always pushing technical, uh, visual, um, stylistic, thematic boundaries yeah. as far as he could. Um, and they didn't always work. You know, the movies weren't, aside from the Muppet movie, they weren't the biggest hits. Um, the TV show, a couple of, you know, neither one of those lasted very long. Yeah. But I think he was he was just intent on doing something different. Yeah. He uh, And he did, too. And he died in 1990 of a 
staph infection. Organ failure brought on by a staph infection. Did you know that? Yeah, I think pneumonia had uh, something to do with it too, didn't it? Not that I saw. Oh, really? I saw organ failure caused by a group A strep infection. I'm sorry. Not staph. Very sad. And if you're ever in the mood for a good cry, watch the Jim Henson Memorial where Big Bird sings, It's Not Easy Being Green. Yeah. Tough stuff, people. Uh, his children, um, his legacy lives on through, uh, 1993, Jane, uh, his wife, uh, formed, uh, founded the Jim Henson legacy to preserve his contributions, share them with the public. And like I said, he donated 500 puppets to the Center of Puppetry Arts. And, uh, there is also the Jim Henson Memorial and Muppet Museum Mm -hmm. and traveling exhibits and his, uh, sons and daughters, uh, help run his foundation, and some of them are puppeteers and themselves too. and run the company. Yeah, The company has changed hands a lot. Um, I have sort of the boring history. When he was still alive, he was going to sell it to Disney for $150 million. Yeah, because apparently he believed in Disney's commitment to yeah. characters. So he thought like that would be a good place for the Muppets to live. Yeah, and Disney went, <laughs> <laughs> He bought it. Yeah. Uh, but he did not get that deal uh, finished. But it turns out $150 million was chump change uh, because in 2000, his children sold the entire company, including the Sesame Street characters, to a German media company for $680 million. Wow. And then I believe that company fell on hard times and they bought it back in 2003 for $84 million. What? Isn't that crazy? Wow, the Henson children are smart. And in between all that, there are various exchanges of percentages of stakes with other companies and rights of certain characters. Uh, well, it's a little dull to go over all of that, but needless to say, they made up pretty well. And eventually, Disney now does, uh, they do own all the Muppet studio. They own the Muppets. The, apparently, the Henson company sold the rights to the Sesame Street characters to Sesame Street. Which is right. pretty cool. Yes. And the Jim Henson Creature Shop still builds the Sesame Street puppets and Muppets. Yeah, it says they sold the rights to the Muppets and Bear and the Big Blue House characters, which I'm not familiar with that one. Nor am I. But Disney wanted, uh, I guess that's sort of the the player to be named later that's included in the in the baseball trade. Right. <laughs> Man, I'm proud of the Henson kids. Yeah. They're great. And uh, I hope we get tweeted about this one from them. They seem... Uh, seem pretty great. Brian and uh, Cheryl and the gang, they seem like they're doing right by the dad. And there's other siblings, too, and I think they're all involved. Yep. Super involved. Yeah. And sadly, Jane uh, passed away, I think, in 2013 yeah. uh, at the age of 78. I would have loved to have seen what kind of work he did later in his life. Oh, yeah. The fact that he died in 1990 still had like yeah. a couple of TV shows going. I He's mean, 53 years old. Yeah, he had, he had a lot of robbed. work left in yeah. him. Uh, if you want to know more about Jim Henson, go listen to our Muppets episode. And uh, while you're looking that up, you can also uh, search Jim Henson on the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And we'll bring up this great article. And uh, since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Uh, this is, I'm going to call this sophomore, smart sophomore. Hey guys, my name is Matt and I'm a sophomore in smart high school. Sophomore. Smart sophomore. I'm a newer fan of the show, and I listen while I do everything. just wanted to say the Dark Ages were only dark in Europe. Uh, the life expectancy in the Dark Ages was actually a little longer than before, but uh, mostly because there were smaller wars, but things were certainly brighter in the Islamic world. In fact, people in the Middle East were really enlightened during this time. Within about 100 years, they conquered a lot of new 
land, including Spain. Also, the Arabic language grew to be the language of philosophy, medicine, and poetry. And Baghdad became the world's center of scholarship. They translated almost all of the famous Greek philosophers' work into Arabic. Uh, Muslim Muslims developed uh, algebra to simplify inheritance laws, and they made important strides in trigonometry to help people find a way to Mecca. Architecture grew, too. Uh, the Great Mosque in Spain only took roughly a year, while medieval cathedrals took hundreds of years to build. Wow. So the Dark Ages weren't that dark, and the Enlightenment came earlier than most think. And that is from Matt. Thanks, Matt. That is enlightening stuff, my friend. Yeah, our numerals are Arabic. Yeah. It's true. We should uh, we should hit on some more Middle Eastern topics. Let's do it, man. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to suggest some Middle Eastern topics for us, you can tweet them to us at SYSK Podcast. You can post them on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash stuff you should know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast.howstuffworks.com. And as always, hang out at our beautiful home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 